Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. First uh, Peter chapter 2, and we're continuing our walk through the book of First Peter, which will take us, Lord willing, up to uh, Christmas season, which as I was looking at my calendar the other day, it's going to be here before we know it. It's coming soon. But as we, uh, as we navigate this, uh, I pray that you would pause and consider in your own spaces where you do life, uh, what is it that you feel most hinders or holds back uh, our relationship with the Lord? And, and you notice I said our there, because if we believe that uh, together we are the church, then if any one part of us is held back, the whole is held back. And I, I want us to grasp that concept as we step into today, uh, because it's really important that we see... That nowhere does the Lord call us individually to figure out how to follow Jesus alone. Nowhere in scripture is the church ever referenced meaning one individual. Uh, Even Jesus himself when he sent his disciples out to share the gospel did so by sending them out in pairs. And yet so often in our culture today... Uh, We are prone to have this, I call it a narcissistic view of faith that says my relationship with Jesus is really about me instead of about us. And in the same way that in our family unit, my wife and I and our three kids, if any one of us is is off kilter, the whole is off kilter. The same is true for us as the body of Christ. And that, that should motivate our care for one another, our prayer for one another, our encouragement for one another, our stirring and seeking to push one another towards Jesus, and our reception of those things, even when it may be a little painful and uncomfortable. And so I just want to pause as we consider that. That in and of itself, honestly, we could sit with that simple truth and leave for the day and and be challenged. And some of you go, yeah, let's do it. (laughs) But I I want to set the tone with that. And you'll understand why here in a minute. uh, Why this is so important for us to grasp. So let's pause. I want to pray and ask the Lord to reveal amongst us. Where, where we need shift, where we need help in that way. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for a faithfulness and a mercy that, Lord, we have not always had. 
and that is not possible apart from the work of Jesus. Uh, Today, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to what is hindering us as the church from passionately pursuing all that you have called us to. Father, reveal to us the distractions that keep us from simply walking in authenticity. Lord, in the midst of burdens, heaviness, challenge, Lord, help us to see your faithfulness far more evidently than what feels like the mountain that we face. In the midst of a culture that is increasingly difficult to discuss these things with, help us to not only see, but model and emulate the very same love you've shown us in Christ. Being bold to proclaim truth, weeping in the face of sinfulness, Lord, constantly frustrated by the state of how things are, knowing how you created them to be. But all the more anticipating together with a confident assurance, the future hope that you have given and sealed in us through Christ by the power of your spirit. Use this this time and your word powerfully to move us from where we are to where you long for us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Who are you? Identify yourself. Now, what comes first to your mind when you hear those statements? Uh, Surely your name does, possibly your place of residence. Many of you may be prone to think when someone asks that question that you pull out your uh, your driver's license to identify yourself and say, this is who I legally am. But say that that doesn't suffice for a moment and one keeps probing. No, 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 no. What is your identity? Who do you see yourself as? Now, most common responses to that question end up taking a turn that comes back to, well, this is what I do for my job. That would be the, when I probe a little and ask that question of someone, that is the most common response. Others would uh, resolve around likes or dislikes, hobbies or maybe quirks about their personality. Regardless, we all have something that resonates when we think about what makes you, you. What is your identity? Now, all of those ideas and concepts that come to mind when we seek to answer that question kind of get thrown into a melting pot of what I would call identity soup that never seems to quite turn out the way we planned for it to. Uh, it's interesting, uh, when you look across the cultural lens of how identity is not only defined, but even more specifically, how it is developed, I thought that this quote actually uh, did a good job of highlighting the general attitude towards identity that the modern day culture has. I preface this again because I don't want you to misunderstand the quote I'm about to put up as something that we would affirm. Okay? And it's by a very well-known author. This is what it says. Be who you are 
and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. Now, I put that up there and I sat, when, when, I, when I was typing this out and when I was researching some of this, I sat and stared at that quote for quite some time. Mostly because as I read through that, I thought, this is a message that has largely become accepted by the Christian community. This has no longer become something that generally I hear from just the world around. It has permeated the very identity and culture of the church. And that's a problem. It's a problem in multiple senses. The primary one being that God did not send his son into the world to die for the ones who cared. But rather for those who were still in their sin. A statement like this becomes very anti-gospel. And yet, you and I, in our flesh, are very prone to say, I'm going to build myself into who I want to be, and if you don't like it, I'm going to cut you out. I'm going to do what I want to do, and if you don't like it, I don't care. Now, I want to be cautious in this because on the other side of the coin, we easily become someone who only caters to individuals when we think about this concept of identity. Uh, we see ourselves through the lens of how others would see us. Some of you are stuck in this trap where you're constantly in this cycle of trying to appease everyone and make everyone happy. And so you're stuck in a war that you will never win. Because as we look at the world around us and we think about culture, we think about differences, we recognize that there are very stark opposites. Not just in personality, but even more importantly in worldview. About how we view the world. What we view the solution to the problems around us as. And so this is not saying that somehow that we just have to kind of uh, move past a lot of these differences, but it should change our thinking in regards to what is our identity, how should we define our identity, and biblically, this is the most important part, biblically, what should that be? Now, there's a second quote I want to show you um, by the late Tim- Timothy Keller, and there's a lot of really good stuff that he shares. And this is just prefacing what I want you to see in scripture. But I love how this is worded. And think about this in contrast to what we just saw in that first quote. The gospel shows us that our spiritual problem lies not only in failing to obey God. But also in relying on our obedience to make us fully acceptable to God. Ourselves and others. Catch that? Every kind of character flaw comes from this natural impulse to be our own savior through our own performance and achievement. On the one hand, proud and disdainful personalities come from basing your identity on your performance and thinking you are succeeding. But on the other hand, discouraged and self-loathing personalities also come from basing your identity on your performance and thinking you are failing. Now, I bring 
this because it identifies two ends of the spectrum that are important. Just because you may not be a prideful person does not mean that you don't struggle with an identity crisis. Because in many ways, we, more people that I meet day to day are prone to beat themselves up than they are puff themselves up. I fall into that category. I am way more prone to just beat myself up over the smallest little things than I am to puff myself up. And that could be just as dangerous to our identity as it should be biblically. So, in light of these thoughts, let's turn to what's most important, which is Scripture. I want to, I'm going to read in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 10. 1 Peter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Praise the Lord for his word. Now, when we stop and ponder this, we need to remember who Peter is writing to. Peter's writing to believers. Everyone say believers. He's writing to those who follow Christ. And he, if, if you were to glance back, if this is the first time you're joining us, or just as a refresher course, if you were to glance back at the first couple verses in First Peter, chapter 1, you would see that he's writing to this whole string of churches. And we talked about that those churches are churches across the region of Asia Minor, which is now modern day what? Turkey, okay? Uh, modern day Turkey. So geographically, this is who he's writing to. And the first thing we need to seek to understand in this is what is his purpose in writing to these people. And from that, we're going to call to mind what the Lord would teach us through this. And so... In the beginning of this, it, we see a couple of exhortations, at least on the surface level, put away these things. Uh, we see the, the, the seeming exhortation to uh, grow up into salvation. And yet, in the midst of this whole 
text, the, the, the primary focus and exhortation is really this in verse 2, that uh, we would long, the, the church, Peter encouraging these believers to long for the pure spiritual milk. He, he gives this image of like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. Uh, imagine that with me for a second. Uh, think through the perspective of those uh, first time mother and the feeding schedules. Does not matter what you would like the routine to be. Does not matter what is convenient. It matters when that infant is hungry. Everyone knows about it. And it doesn't matter what time of day it is. Now take that same idea and paint the the biblical picture of a group of people that are so clinging to the Lord that the best description of what they would be walking in and pursuing is a longing, a deep desire, a hunger, a craving... For that which only God can provide. I can tell you that when our children were infants and they started getting hungry, they did not want me. Because they knew that mom was the one who was providing that nourishment. And so, it, it wasn't... If, if, if we are a people, if, if the church is a people that longs for the pure spiritual milk that comes from the Lord alone then we recognize we will not find that anywhere else. It will not come from anywhere else. There's so many images wrapped up in just that single statement. But the, the other exhortations that follow this are all around the commanded yearning that this is who you should be. You should be people who long for this pure spiritual nourishment. And the reason you should long for that is because you need to grow up into salvation. That's the, that's the end goal. The exhortation is crave this so that you will mature. Now, <clears throat> there, when we think about the phrase itself, some of you, if, if you're familiar with some of the rest of scripture, you're going to go, well, wait a minute. Isn't there places in scripture where it talks about this, it uses kind of language almost in a negative sense? I would say yes. 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5 are two places it talks about you should be eating solid food by now. But instead you're drinking milk. Both of these places the writer is seeking to exhort the people to stop acting like infants and grow up in maturity in Christ. This is... We need not put those two side by side in the sense that we become saying, well, I'm going to be like a newborn infant longing for pure spiritual nourishment from the Lord for a time, but eventually I won't need that. No, there will never be a time in our earthly lives that we do not need this type of nourishment. And there is a difference between the person who sits in the elementary things because they're comfortable 
As opposed to the person that longs to be nourished from God, knowing it only comes from God, and therefore grows up gradually into different food groups still provided by God. And so you see these two don't contradict each other, but they complement one another. That our longing as we grow should be the same, regardless of the season we're in. The question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like to long for this? And uh, the, really, the, the first thing we see it looks like is the ongoing putting away of our flesh. First one, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. We could go to many other places in scripture. We could go to the book of Galatians where he lists most common, most people recognize the fruit of the spirit or have heard of that in Galatians chapter five. And yet it contrasts that which this is what the flesh looks like. These are, these are the desires of the flesh. And if you keep reading, it goes, well, the desires of the spirit are opposed to the desires of the flesh. The two aren't compatible. <laughs> they don't work. So how do we develop this longing? Well, it starts with us putting away the things that we would identify as fleshly. Ongoing. It's, it's, it's not a family. We will, we will never reach until eternity a place that we will not have to actively, actively fight to put off the things of our flesh. So if you feel that you are not in a war with your flesh right now, we need to stop and consider whether you have kind of wandered over to the opposing side. And, and consider what it looks like together to fight moving towards what God has called us to. It's easy to do. It's easy to fall prey to that. I'm just going to sit in my flesh. So much easier. It's natural for you. We have to be intentional about this longing. So putting off those things of the flesh. But how, how do we develop this kind of longing? Uh, and if, if we know the aim is that you may grow up into salvation, what do we do? Well, first thing, I need to know what a grown-up looks like. What, what does it look like to be mature? And I will say this. It should be no surprise to us that age is no qualifier of maturity. There are many people who are significantly older than many of you who are less mature than my children. Okay? Age is no qualifier of maturity. When I say know what a grown-up looks like, we're talking about biblically what does a mature follower of Jesus look like? Who defines that? Well, God has defined that. And you can read throughout scripture and seek to answer this question. And the only way you're going to answer it accurately is to look at it from God's perspective, not the world's. Practice doing grown-up things. Uh, <clears throat> this is the, the <laughs> cultural note here. Parents... At some point, your kids need to learn to do adult things. And they need to be allowed to fail to learn to do adult things. How is this pertinent to any of this, Matt? Well, because so often, 
especially in the culture today, we have this mindset of, I want to protect and hold my children in one place. And we can have the same mindset in the church. I want to, I want to protect you and hold you in the place you are because I feel like it's secure and the world's a crazy place. The problem, the problem with that is at some point there has to be a transition. Now, God has given you as parents the responsibility to know when should that transition take place. And it may be different for different children. The point of this being, if you and I just sit here and consume the information and know what God's word says and could give a running definition of what it looks like to be a mature follower of Jesus, but we've never actually stepped out into the world and lived it, then we're not going to grow up. We're going to fall back to myself or other pastoral staff or the people who've walked with us in seasons of life. And at some point, we have to go and do and practice. You will never, you will never improve your ability to understand scripture if you don't read the Bible. Uh, you will never feel confident to share the gospel with someone if you don't start trying to share the gospel with people. You will never reach these points of your faith if you don't start taking steps to move there. It's having this idea in our minds, what does it look like to grow up into this salvation that we talked about last week is so valuable. But may we not be people who simply value this and then go about our own way. <clears throat> Look at what Ephesians 4 says here. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to what? Mature manhood. There's the aim. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what is the example that we have to run off of at the beginning? It's Jesus. You want to know what adulthood looks like in the spiritual realm? From an earthly perspective, it looks like Jesus. He is the example. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to what? Grow up in every way into him who is the head. That's Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. All this to say, don't consider man's definition of maturity. Consider God's. Practice doing grown-up things. Here's a simple way to do that. Serve Others more than you consume. You want to practice doing mature spiritual life? Serve others more than you consume. That's a culture shift. Find someone who's already living this way and go with them in their life. Ask to meet with them. Ask to go to breakfast or lunch with them. Invite them into your own space and ask questions about their life and their journey with Christ. Thirdly, fight the fight 
or fight the urge to settle for what is comfortable. These are all ways that we can practically develop a longing that Peter is telling the church here in the region of Turkey that you should long for the pure spiritual milk or nourishment that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, the, the second part of this is really this, we look at this and we go, Matt, this is a lofty goal, to long for these things. If my identity is in my job, I feel I can attain the next level. I, I have markers I can follow. I can accomplish this. If my identity is in my family, I feel a sense of control over how this comes to be. But this type of identity shift is, is never ending because there's always something else. And so Peter shifts here really to answer the question of why, why should I do this? And this is what he gives as the reminder and motivation for pursuing this type of longing and maturing in Christ. Your identity and foundation is Christ. It is Christ. Look at, in these verses, all the examples of this. Verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, pause and consider an identity shift from how the culture would define who, who you are, who we are, to these definitive markers. My person whose identity is in Christ, rejected by men, uh, okay. Who do we see in scripture that this happened to? Jesus. Rejected by men. Chosen and used by God. Sent with purpose. Living stones being built into a spiritual house. Picture this with me. You're building the foundation of a house. And you lay the first few blocks. And those blocks come to life. And start building the rest. That is what it looks like to be a living stone. That you recognize how the Lord has transformed your own life. But also recognize He has not transformed you just for you. He's transformed you that you might continue the work He's begun in you. That you might be spurred on to continue building what he has already begun. And you stop and you ponder that and you think about how much faster is that work going to be accomplished if the church as a whole goes, we are living stones a part of the same foundation. A foundation where we're going to see in a minute, Christ is the standard by which everything remains level and secure. And so we're going to continue this work of building, building, building. Being built into a spiritual house. 
Not a, not, not a, not a physical house. A spiritual one. The amazing principle behind that is no one can tear down the house that the Lord is building. Here's a common cultural correction. This facility is not the house of the Lord. You are. If you are in Christ, you are the very spiritual building the Lord has constructed. And why that is so powerful is because it doesn't matter what what direction the world goes. If we recognize that, and don't just recognize it, but believe it to be true, that, that is where there is security. Because I believe, I believe, church family, there will come a day when the church in Canton is not able to meet in this place anymore. I don't know when that will be. But it's going to come. Paul, Paul told Timothy to expect that to happen. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. And it's why our motive should be that the church that is built is a spiritual stronghold, not a physical one. It has to be. Because it's the only thing that's going to last. So when we allow slight divisions or frustrations or personal opinion to get in the way of God's work of building a spiritual house, we should be most concerned about that. Holy priesthood. How many of you, if someone asked you to identify yourself, What's your identity? Would say, I'm a priest. If you're in Christ, did you know you are? A spiritual house, this is verse 5, to be what? A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Now one would ask, well, what do you mean? Because there's a lot of definitions of priests that I'm not sure I agree with. I'm with you. Okay? But here, there's a couple places. Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see here that it's actually the living sacrifice that is the spiritual worship? Well, who is he referring to as the living sacrifice? It's the church. The church. Present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Wholly acceptable to God because that is your spiritual worship. Who ushered in worship throughout the Old Testament law? The priests did. They were responsible for that. More specifically though, Romans 15. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers. That you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now, he's not talking here about physically sacrificing the Gentile people, okay? 
What he's saying is, I have a priestly responsibility to bear the gospel in my hands. And I understand that those who come to faith in Christ are the living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God that he just talked about in Romans 12. So if you are in Christ, you have a responsibility to be a minister of the gospel. That means you have a biblical call as a, as a priesthood of believers. There's one more place I want to take you in this that emphasizes this even further. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. This is all Old Testament reference. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify. That would be to set apart or make holy the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually do what? Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, in the Old Testament, there was one group of people who could offer sacrifice to the Lord. Who was it? The priests. How is it that one is made a priest in the kingdom of God? Through Christ. Who was both the sacrifice and the chief priest. Never before in biblical history was there ever another who was both. Because it wasn't possible. Christ changed the fabric of the identity of the church. That's where we see a, this quotation from Isaiah 28 in verse 6. <clears throat> Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in, in, in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. This is not hard to understand in the sense that those who choose not to follow Christ reject Christ. And if you reject Christ, the very you are the builder who has rejected the stone that God has used for the cornerstone. The cornerstone, if you don't know what this is, was set into place to secure everything else so that it was be square, everything would be level, it would be secure. It was all based in that cornerstone. Do you know something interesting? The word there translated cornerstone is also the same word that's used for head, where it says Christ is the head of the church. It's also the same word that's used to challenge husbands to be the head of their homes. Now you consider that for a moment and you stop and think about the difference between headship in an unhealthy way, which is an authoritarian overarching, I'm going to bear down on you, versus the idea of a cornerstone on which everything else is built up. And it changes the very concept that we even understand that to mean. Verse 9 finishes this identity focus where it says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. 
And then verse 10 gives us the greatest hope. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Who you once were is no longer who you are if you are in Christ. Do you believe that to be true? One final quote to distinguish this concept of identity in our lives and understand who we're called to be as the church. Religion would say my identity is built on being a good person. More good than bad. But the gospel says my identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on Christ. On Christ alone. The cornerstone. Family, I long that you would know biblically who you are called to be as followers of Jesus. And so as we wrestle these realities, let's struggle together in this war against our flesh. Let's challenge one another not to sit in immaturity, but to grow up together. And not grow up. Don't say it like that. Grow up. Don't, don't do that. Let's come alongside one another. And say, hey, let's, let's follow Jesus together. Let's, let's open God's word together. And goodness, if someone comes alongside of you and points out an area of your life where you need to mature, praise God that you have someone who loves you enough to call you out. Don't rid your life of people who frustrate you because they constantly are trying to push you. If you do, you're going to stay a baby. And I'm challenging us to grow up in Christ in an understanding of what He has done and what He has promised. Will you join me, family, on that journey to pursue Jesus together? I'm going to ask the worship team to come. And... I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And as they come, I'm just going to put this passage of scripture up here and challenge you to read Ephesians 2, these first 10 verses this week to chew on this as a reminder that in Christ, who we once were is no longer who we are. Therefore, if we are following Christ, who we are, who we should be today should not look like who we used to be yesterday. As it relates to how we walk this walk. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope of Jesus. Thank you for the the challenge for us to long for pure spiritual nourishment that we would grow up into that which has already been given through Christ. Lord, we confess that it is a lot easier to walk in sin than it is to walk in your spirit. Lord, may we be motivated by who you are and what you have done to live authentically 
put off the old way and, and walk in newness of life. Thank you for the example you've given us in Jesus. We trust you to continue the work that you've already begun. Use us for your purposes, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.